What's up, guys? Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this podcast, as well as the advertisements that are going to start right now. Guys, a couple of our good friends over at Sig Sauer and Black Rifle Coffee make this podcast totally possible. Uh, they are the ones that supply us with caffeine and firearms to shoot. And we highly recommend that you guys check them out. So let me start off with Sig Sauer. Uh, Sig, great company. I've been carrying SIG firearms for many years, and I've gone to the SIG Academy a whole bunch of times. Um, usually when I talk about SIG, I like to bring up something personal or something I'm working on. So uh, what I just did this past weekend, I was out on the property that we utilize out in Spanish Fork, painted a whole bunch of steel, and I wanted to push back my SIG P365 as far as I could. Now, I got my 365 um, many years ago, and it's gone through different iterations, short slide, short frame, short slide and long frame, long slide and long frame, that type of thing. And, uh, the best improvement I've made to it is just adding the flat trigger from gray guns. Well, I forgot how accurate that, that little gun is and, you know, shooting man sized steel pushed back 50 yards, 60 yards, 70 yards, which is this little subcompact gun. Uh, very, very impressive firearm. And I love mine. I love the fact that I can make one firearm control or fire control unit into multiple firearms to suit my needs. So I can carry it full size XL frame, XL slide, TLR seven sub uh, in a black point tactical holster for when I'm hiking, or I can carry it in the super compact version with the 10 round mag, small slide or short slide, short frame. And I can wear that thing uh, either on an ankle rig or in a pocket holster if I'm going to a wedding or somewhere where I can't overtly carry or easily conceal carry. So guys, Sig Sauer, they are a fantastic company. They're located up in New Hampshire, the live free or die state, also known as the Granite State. And if you get a chance to go up to the Sig Academy, do so stop in the SIG Experience Center, check out the museum, check out the pro shop, get yourself some training. And uh, I always tell people, if you're going to go up there, make it a whole weekend, right? Stay at the Exeter Inn. It's a great hotel. Eat at Goody Cole's. It's the best barbecue, like five minutes down the road. I uh, just do not recommend if you're going up there for a long range course to eat a whole bunch of Goody Cole's and then lay in the rifle deck because you'll probably fall asleep behind your rifle. Um, so thank you so much, SIG, for making this podcast possible. The other company I want to recognize is Black Rifle Coffee. Black Rifle Coffee has been with us since the very beginning. I've been to Black Rifle, the store uh, over in Salt Lake City a bunch of times, and they do a really great job with uh, getting the message out there of being in the great outdoors and uh, you know all that jazz that's related to hunting, fishing, shooting, you name it. Um, so black rifle coffee, they've got a whole bunch of different coffee flavors. Um, I like silencer smooth. Sometimes I like a dark coffee, but silencer smooth is their lightest blend and it really is smooth. Uh, if you're like Jack Carr, then you're going to have your coffee with honey. Uh, yes, he does that. So does James Reese. So, uh, you guys can have it however you want. If you like the ready to drink stuff, uh, I want to experiment with that ready to drink stuff. It's 200 milligrams in a can and it comes with cream already. But I think there's some like science or I don't know, magic that can be had if I'm going to experiment with a ready to drink can and additional coffee that I brew. Maybe I'll get like the perfect ratio. I don't know. 
But guys, go to blackriflecoffee.com. You can use our coupon code CRAFT15 and CRAFT15 will get you 15% off of your order. Certain things are not going to apply like the certain bundles and ready to drink stuff, but you can get coffee by the pound. You can get t-shirts, all that great stuff, and it'll be 15% off. So that's CRAFT15 over at blackriflecoffee.com. And please follow all of the folks that work for them. They've got some really, really good people over there. Chris, Reagan, I'm shouting you guys out. Uh, thanks for being good friends. And hopefully we'll see you at the next event soon. So guys, thank you so much for supporting this podcast, Sig Sour and Black Rifle Coffee. But without further ado, let's get this thing going. Here we go. I'll tell you, the world is a freaking weird place. Um, you know, I always say people need to be their own first responder. That's kind of like our, our mantra here at Fieldcraft Survival. And I swear, you know, you, you want to... You want to like hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And, you know, I, I'll just say that there are a lot of folks out there that are helping good people become very capable. Uh, my podcast guest today is someone who I was actually on the other side of the microphone or other side of the recording box or whatever you want to call it in the podcast world. And uh, she had me on. We started talking and, you know, I did a little bit of research and I was like, you know, what? I think our listeners here at Fieldcraft could benefit from hearing from Ava. So you're about to hear from Ava Flannell. She's the host of the Gun Funny podcast. She's actually the founder of Elite Firearms and Training, all around badass, uh, someone who posts up some pretty hilarious stuff to her Instagram account. I'll let her talk about that. Um, and we're just going to talk about the current state of affairs with self-defense, uh, the 2A community, and just life in general. So with that being said, Ava, Good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on here. Uh, you know, we had a we had a good time on your podcast, and you know, I enjoyed answering those questions and talking about the gun community. And I know that you've got a lot to offer. I mean, you've been in the community pretty much your whole life, right? I mean, your family owned a gun store. Yeah. So. I, I say that like, really, I mean, I grew, so I grew up around guns. My parents, they owned a gun store, a gun range, and I never took an interest in firearms, but obviously at the dinner table, you know, I was still listening when they were having conversations about their business. Um, but again, I wasn't really that interested. I was like pretty girly and didn't really care for guns. And then when I turned 18, I went to school in New York city and thought that I'd be there for a while. Like I wasn't planning on coming back anytime soon. Went to college, ended up working for the New York Yankees in legal and finance. I spent about eight years there. And then it wasn't until a month short of my 25th birthday that I shot my first gun. So yes, I was, I was raised around guns and I guess kind of within the industry, but I still had quite a bit to learn, you know? So it's like, I have, I, I have like a really kind of an interesting background. Did the fact that your parents owned a gun store, did that ever discourage guys from like wanting to come over the house to like date you like, oh, our dad owns a gun store. He's got a whole bunch of guns. Did your dad ever try that? Like with guys that came by to pick um, you up? Yeah. So it was funny because my dad actually made a pretty big name for himself within the industry mm -hmm. and um, or not within the industry, but just in within Colorado and within Colorado Springs and everybody always kind of feared my dad, but I joked, it was really my mom that everyone had a fear. Like my dad was just like, yeah, I mean, he would, 
we'd go out to dinner and he would joke with the waiter like, yeah, you, you guys want to date my daughters because I have a younger sister. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was just constantly just like, yeah, all right, get a boyfriend, move out, you know, get out of my hair, like jokingly. Whereas my mom was like very protective of us. And if anyone messed with us, like she was just on it. <laughs> so it, even though, you know, even though he was the one that seemed scary, it was really my mom. You know, I joke around all the time. I say that I've got three nieces that I'm super protective of. And if anyone ever hurt one of my nieces, I'd probably go to jail or I'd guarantee I'd go to jail. But, you know, over time I think about it and it's like, you know, I've got one niece right now who actually is looking her number one school, by the way, is your alma mater. We can talk about that later. Um, So I, I think about that now, like, how could I really get my rocks off as like a 40 something year old guy threatening some teenage kid? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if I, I want to be that much of a D bag, you know, yeah. meeting, meeting the guy at the door with like a, like a pistol in my, my waistband or a rifle over my shoulder. Um, you know, cause I mean, really, like I think about that and it's like, what middle-aged guy has, you know, you know, gets off on, on threatening a teenager. Um, yeah, but- I know. And also, I mean, nowadays, like guns have become so political that I wouldn't want to rub somebody the wrong way and come off as scary and then sort of put that fear of guns on them. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, you think about it, that teenage kid has parents that are probably my age and it's like, really, that guy did that? What a loser. Yeah. You know what right? I mean? <laughs> um, yeah. But then again, there are ways of of being very intimidating or demanding respect without, mm-hmm. you know, doing anything that overt. Um, yeah. So you go to New York City and that's got to be culture shock. I mean, you grew up in Colorado and you're going to New York City, which I mean, I, I went to school not very far from New York. I went to the other FU. Um, but uh, New York City has changed a lot. What What's that like being an 18 year old kid coming from Colorado Springs or the, the Denver area and going to New York? It was definitely a bit of a culture shock. I So both my parents were, they're from Long Island. And so we would visit, my mom would take my sister and I back there at least twice a year, but we'd typically, you know, stay in Long Island and not go to the city. So there was still culture shock, but I, at least I'd, you know, I'd seen the state before going. Um, but I always, I always said like, it was culture shock coming back, like for holidays and stuff, because I was so used to being around all these like sky rise buildings, concrete, there's very little, you know, grass trees. And then I come back to Colorado and it was just like, you could see for miles and miles and mm-hmm. it kind of felt sort of bare, but it was, I don't know. I mean, so even in Colorado, like I didn't grow up with, there wasn't a lot of different ethnicities. I think there was like 10 African-Americans in my school. Um, I actually, it's funny because my first Well, the first couple of months that I lived in New York, I was looking for an apartment and I got a really great deal in Harlem. It was 125th and Madison Avenue. And the apartment was beautiful. Um, It was, you know, I mean, I was like the only, there was like a few white people, but there wasn't that many. And, but I didn't really know any better. I didn't really, even though I'd like grew up predominantly like in a, in a white area, I didn't really think anything of it. Um, but it was kind of tough because I did get, you know, like I'd be walking down the street, they'd call me Snow White or they'd like cut me in line at Starbucks and be like, what are you going to do about it? And, and I'm not saying that like it, you know, turned me off or anything like that, but it just, it was kind of, that was culture shock. 
Um, and then all the other different ethnicities, like I dated somebody from South Africa, um, somebody from Colombia, and I loved it just because I learned, I like love learning about all of these different, you know, like how other people were brought up and realizing that there's so much more to than what you know, you know? What's your advice for someone who comes from, uh, a community or a neighborhood or, uh, a geographic area that isn't metropolitan, like what's your survival, like what are three or four survival tips that you'd give someone like, Hey, you're going to be living in New York city. This is what you need to know. Uh, I mean, you definitely have to stay alert. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, you have to be on your toes and not just, I mean, not just with people, but cars, you know, you might have the sign that says you can cross the street, but like drivers in New York city are crazy. Uh, so that's like the biggest thing is just like, definitely stay alert. Um, there's, I think that that's actually in New York is when I sort of built a lot of business skills because everyone, sadly to say, everyone likes to rip each other off there or they like to haggle. And that's something that I didn't see in Colorado. It was like the price is the price. But like, if you, you know, if somebody's selling stuff on the street, they always haggle with you. Um, and then, I mean, those are really the, the two biggest things is like, don't get taken advantage of, be alert and, and be open-minded, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the cool things about New York is you can walk down one street or one Avenue and you're going to walk through one type of neighborhood that's selling, say like all Middle Eastern food. And then you walk into another that's going to serve, you know, Latino food. And I mean, it's so much, it, well, I should say it used to be a lot of fun to take the, the Metro North into there. Um, we mm-hmm. used to do it all the time from, from Fairfield. And, uh, you know, it was always interesting. Like I dated a girl who, uh, lived in Queens and I would meet up with her in the city all the time. And then knowing that train schedule and then every once in a while missing that train <laughs> and then having to, yeah. to spend the night in grand central. Um, but the city's changed a lot. Like I know cops are on the job there and they're like, we don't even like being cops anymore because we can't enforce crime. And, you know, I know that they say that there's like a perception that there's not as much crime as the news puts out there, but a lot of the cops are like, Oh no, there really is. We just can't report it or it doesn't Mm -hmm. make the news. Um, so I, I don't get me wrong. New York city, uh, is a lot of fun, but I'd rather be in upstate New York, you know, and upstate New York for all of you, New Yorkers is not, the Catskills, uh, upstate, upstate New York is huh. the Adirondacks. Um, so, okay. So now you're living in New York city or New York, you're working for Yankees and you eventually make the move back to Colorado. Now I was snooping around on, on your website a little bit and it was to help out with the family business. Um, yeah. what is going was- through, what's going through your mind when you're like, okay, I've got this job, which it seems like, you know, working for the Yankees would be a great opportunity to have to pick up and leave and and go back home to do something else. What, like what, what brought that on? So for those who don't know, the reason why I moved back is because my mom passed away suddenly and I just felt being the oldest and um, my dad didn't really know anything. I mean, he didn't even know that we had a microwave or how to work the microwave or how Mm -hmm. to do, you know, laundry or anything like that. So um, I moved back and it, it was, it was interesting because figure I, you know, that's where I spent most of like all of my adult years so far was in New York city, 
building up my career. I worked for the Yankees for about three years. I personally hated it, but it was one of those things where it was like, it's going to look great on my resume after this, you know, I suck it up and then I could pretty much get a job wherever I want. And, and I worked so hard, like building that up, cut to, I don't want to say I threw it away because I did learn a lot, obviously legal and finance, you can carry on to any business, but I really, I mean, it, it, did kind of suck to put it bluntly, um, mm-hmm. to give up, you know, this life you built up and now I had to move back to Colorado. And I just remember even at the time working at my dad's shop that because it's kind of dirty, he has, um, a machine, like a, uh, like he's a machinist as well. So he has all this machinery in the back. He has the gun store up front. Then there's the range, which is outside. And, you know, there's lots of dirt and stuff. And I just remember even at the time, like, all my clothes were so high end at the time that like, I didn't even have anything to wear <laughs> to get dirty because I'm like, uh, this shirt was like $120. I'm not going to sweep the shop wearing this shirt. And so it sounds dumb, but these are some of the things that like I had to change. And I don't know. I mean, but in a way, I mean, so I will say that sometimes, you know, in life really shitty things happen And you don't know why. And I'm not saying that everything happens for a reason because I hate that saying. But sometimes, you know, good things do happen, like do come of really crappy things that happening. And really, if if I didn't move back, I mean, I wouldn't have the career that I have now that I've been spending the past 10 years doing. Yeah, there's an expression. uh, Who knows what bad news? I'm sorry. Who knows what worse news your bad news saved you from? You know what I mean? Like it's the idea that, yeah, you might get dealt a very terrible hand, but, and I know you don't like that expression, but there's a reason why, right? There, Mm -hmm. there's something that, that happened and you have to make the most of it. And I'm sure when you're working in your dad's shop and you know, you have a degree from a prestigious university and you've had a career where you're, you're working in the corporate world, there's gotta be that moment of clarity where you're like, is this what I, what my degree is worth right now? Like you've got to almost, you got to be like, there's got to be more to this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. so, So you're, you're working at the shop and you're learning the gun industry. And at some point you take it to the next level. Now, what are the steps or the fillers in between working at your father's store and then starting your own training company? So working at the store, I realized that there wasn't a lot of resources for women. And because my mom was kind of the brains of the operation, I just dedicated myself to learning as much as I possibly could because I wasn't going to let what my mom worked hard for go, you know, just die because, you know, of what happened. And my dad, yeah, he was the face of it. But really, I mean, we all kind of struggled to like pick up what she did. And so I was determined to learn more about guns and the business and, you know, and obviously working behind the counter if people asked like what I recommended and I was just like, oh, I don't know, there's a black gun and there's a green gun, you know. So I I really dug myself into learning as much as I could. And, And during that process, I did realize that there weren't a lot of resources for women. And even the instructors that came in, they were either like really military like they were military and had that drill sergeant mentality or they were like super old. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but that's who I had to learn from. And so I, I I figured, okay, so as I was taking these training classes and my mom was actually a firearms instructor 
And looking back, I mean, this was over 10 years ago that she was a firearms instructor. She was kind of a pioneer in the industry because there still weren't that many female instructors. But I figured, well, maybe I'll go down the same route as my mom and become a firearms instructor. And so I took a bunch of classes with different instructors just because I felt like everybody offered a little bit different, you know, just to see what their their teaching techniques were and um, got my NRA credentials, like took as many NRA instructor courses as possible. And um, by doing that, it actually made me feel closer to my mom. And suddenly like a light bulb went off. Like I remember her, I was getting ready for classes and getting together packets and, you know, putting different paperwork and stuff in the packets and stuff. And it didn't really make a lot of sense at the time or things that she would talk about. But as I started going down this journey, a lot of things started to click like, okay, well that that's what she was talking about. So it also made me feel a little bit closer to her. Hey, y'all, we wanted to take a quick break to let you know that this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com. Your mind is one of the most powerful tools and valuable assets that you can have. Keeping it sharp is so important. There's no shame in needing someone licensed and ready to navigate your mind with you. Life's challenges can be tricky. And just having clarity and having someone to express your concerns and whatever those coping skills are too, and have them clarify that you're moving in the right direction can make all the difference. What BetterHelp has done is they've connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. Super convenient, super easy, accessible anywhere, 100% online, and totally private. And guess what? If you don't like the therapist you've connected with, you just move on to the next one. So you still get to be in the driver's seat. You still get to be in control, but BetterHelp does all of the vetting for you, and they keep everything secure, and they make it so convenient. Right now, if you visit betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash fieldcraft, the benefit code to get 10% off for being a fieldcraft community member will automatically be applied at checkout. So visit that website today. Y'all, let's get back to the show. If we can backtrack just for a sec, second, you mentioned, you know, when you're working behind the counter and people are coming in and asking questions, there's 100%, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a phenomenon that happens when female aspiring shooters or aspiring, you know, self-defense advocates, like people that want to carry a gun, uh, come into a store and they get the gun store talk. There's gotta be a handful of like red flags that you're aware of as a female in the gun industry, like when say a guy behind the counter, and this could also be a female behind the counter, uh, talks down in a way, like what are some of the red flags that you should be aware of? Like when you go to a gun store and someone says this, or, Hey, this should be your first gun. And you're like, uh, no, that should not be your first gun. Like, do you have a couple? Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of the people that do work behind the counter don't always have the most knowledge either. And so they just assume like women, you know, they have smaller hands, so they want to give them a smaller gun, which you should never pick out a small gun for your first gun. It's going to have a lot of recoil. It's not going to be as easy to manipulate. So I would stay away from smaller guns, get like a medium to a larger frame gun, get comfortable with that. You could always adjust the grips 
to fit your hand um, so that it fits a little bit better. But that's going to help, you know, also with accuracy and just it's going to feel a lot better shooting. And then after that, move to, you know, buying a gun that you can conceal. Um, They also always, you know, want to give you like a smaller caliber or they don't think that you could rack the slide. So they're like, we'll have it a revolver. I mean, especially when I first started out, they were always giving women revolvers. And then the biggest talk, the biggest thing was like, yeah. And if you get a double action revolver, you can shoot this through your purse. You don't even have to pull out the gun because there's no external movements. And I used to hate that because then I had a, a woman that, you know, maybe would lack some hand strength and then shooting some of these double action revolvers, the trigger on it wasn't that great. And so it was just, it was a nightmare. <laughs> you know, when I think of people that carry revolvers uh, and my late mentor, Marty carried a, a Smith and Wesson, I think it was a model 60, uh, five shot, three fifty seven. I mean, he's, he had been there and done that. Um, you know, but when I think of people that shoot revolvers, they're usually thinking like, well, the altercation is going to take place up close. I don't have to be super yeah. accurate with it. And it's like, whoa, slow down. Yeah. You don't have to be super accurate. Like, did you just say that? Um, like, I get it. There's a time and a place for revolvers. And, you know, a lot of the instructors at Gunsight will actually carry a uh, a backup revolver in addition to their, their primary. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, like a revolver, when you're talking about a double action revolver, you're going to talk about a heavier trigger pull, which makes it that much harder to shoot at distance. And you look at something like Eli Dickens, right? Like the kid that took out the the shooter at that mall a few months back. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he, shot, he shot a guy at 40 yards, eight out of 10 times in a matter of seconds. And I would love to see someone with a revolver do the same thing because they'd probably have to reload it in the middle and it's going to take them a lot longer. And I get it. Oh, yeah. There are going to be people that are out there, but train someone on say like a striker fire pistol or mm-hmm. train someone on a traditional, you know, DASA, um, and watch how much better they're going to be in terms of accuracy. Um, yeah. but no, I agree. Like, like sometimes you see the, well, carry it because it's convenient, right? Oh, it's, it's so small. You'll forget that you have it. It's like, well, that's not like, if you have to defend your life, do you want something that is just barely there? Or do you want something that's substantial? And I think one of the the greatest problems with the gun industry today is people want convenience, um, you know, and they don't have the willingness to change other aspects of their life other than, hey, I need to make room for this in my bag or on my waist. Like they're not willing to change their apparel, you know, mm-hmm. to, to match the lifestyle, um, which I think is just a formula for failure. Um, yeah. So now you you start your company and you become accredited and you start uh, teaching women. Now, did you have men in these courses as well, or were you just primarily teaching uh, women only? No, I had a ton of men and Mm -hmm. that's because, and I, and I've told a lot of people this before. So one, I mean, I was the only one at my business. It's not like, you know, guys were signing up for a class and they didn't realize that it was a female instructor. I mean, my face is plastered all over my website, the classes, everything. But what I found is a lot of men, especially if they've never shot before, they would rather learn from a woman because there's no ego involved. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so, yeah, like I would teach women, but really, I mean, it was, it was still majority of men. Um, every now and then I would offer a female only class, but even then I didn't always, I didn't love that. Um, just because most of the guys that were signing up for my class, they already knew what they were getting into and they weren't going to give me or any of the other students issues. So now I'm looking on your, on your site right now, just kind of, you know, 
scrolling through what we have to offer here. Um, now, are you primarily teaching from uh, the holster or are you doing, you know, like stand at the firing line, put your firearm up on like the, the counter, that type of thing? Or like, what's the gambit of courses? So, um, so I will say, um, as of this year, so I had my business since 2013 and mm -hmm. as of this year, I actually closed my doors to elite firearms and training and I invested in a, uh, it's called DCF guns. They have three locations here in Colorado, one in Castle Rock, two in Colorado Springs. And that's because I felt like I took my business as far as I possibly could without investing millions into my own facility, you know, up updating everything which I didn't really want to, um, it just seemed like, it seemed like a good idea. So to close my doors and then, you know, join forces with them. And so now I'm teaching at all three locations and we have all the ranges are indoors. There's five ranges total, including one 100 yard range, which is pretty impressive and it has like all, you know, state of the art, uh, you know, ranges like the targets and stuff. It also has a gun store. We offer gunsmithing, um, services and stuff like that. But as far as the classes that I teach, they're still very basic. I want to, I'll be honest, I am getting a little bored teaching the same thing over and over again, but what sucks is I'm just so good at it. And I know that I don't sound humble at all, but I can take anyone. I even taught somebody the other day who is disabled and she was like in tears at the end because she was hitting bullseyes but I can see exactly what somebody's doing. And as long as they're willing to listen and correct, you know, what I tell them, I can have them shooting extremely well and leaving, you know, very confident afterwards. Um, but really the last couple of years, the, the biggest classes that I've taught were basic pistol and concealed carry. And in the beginning, you know, any of the entry level classes, I'm not teaching from the holster. That would be a more advanced class. Once I know that, you know, they have like the safety fundamentals down, they're shooting accurately, stuff like that. I think <clears throat> with uh, a lot of people that are just getting into it, there's definitely a, uh, I won't say like a reluctance, but there's almost like a, a little anxiety of mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to go to a course that's not a safety course, right? Like there are some folks who believe that that basic NRA safety course is training. And it's like, yeah. that is a safety class to make sure that you can function the firearm, but it's not going to teach you, or in your case, coach someone to become a better version uh, mm -hmm. of themselves as a, as a marksman. Um, what do you find are some of the common mistakes that people make when they first start off? Like, I mean, you've been, you've been doing this now for a while, almost 10 years like what do you find are some of the most common errors or common questions that come up from the, from the training uh, with regards to, you know, accuracy or like, what's your perspective on that? So the biggest thing, so right when I, when I take people to the range for the first time and you're right, they, it doesn't matter male or female, they all have anxiety about it and they're not sure how the recoil is going to feel. And if they are scared of the recoil, I could start them on a 22 you know, so that way they're not really focused on the recoil, but more of the fundamentals of shooting. Um, but really the biggest reason why a lot of people aren't accurate is their, you know, their grip. Um, I teach, you know, that push pull. So you're pushing forward with your right hand or your dominant hand pulling back with your left. You're going to change that as you get a little more advanced, but starting out, that's what I teach. 
And then really just lining up those sites. So a lot of people don't understand the site alignment and how important it is and not just to line it up once and then, okay, get distracted, pull on the trigger. You're lining up the sites the entire time, but really it's trigger pull. And I know that there's people out there that have argued otherwise that as long as you, you know, can do all of everything else, trigger pulls and everything, but you really have to concentrate on how much pressure you're applying to the trigger. Just do a nice, you know, a nice pull back. You're not, nothing else is moving except for that trigger finger. And I always tell people, you know, treat it like an egg. We're just trying to move the egg. We're not trying to break the shell. And you're just going to keep slowly pulling back until it goes off. Like we don't even know when it's going to go off. It's going to be a surprise. But at that point, that's usually when they start shooting accurately. And then as they get more comfortable, they could always increase speed because you're clearly not going to you know, be in a self-defense situation where you're just slowly pulling on that trigger, right, right. but you get the feel for it and then you can increase speed and pull as fast as you want, but you're still hitting accurately. Yeah. I just had an, an Instagram uh, follower reach out to me and she's like, yeah, you know, I was uh, dating some guy and we were going to get into competitive shooting and I'm looking for good resources for, for training. Do you have any recommendations? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, uh, like I want to give you a, a short answer because I could write a dissertation on, on how to approach training. But I think yeah. you, you nailed it when you said like, okay, let's do safety, right? Get them safe handling and then work strict marksmanship. And then yeah. from that marksmanship, you can always speed up. Uh, mm -hmm. it's very difficult when people want to do the opposite, when they want to do safety, they want to shoot super fast and then they want to try to learn marksmanship because they burnt so many bad reps of that, that proper, you know, trigger press. Absolutely. And, yeah. Know. So it's really important to just get a solid foundation. So safety is first. And, and I've said this actually on a uh, federal's podcast, they were like, if, if students can take, you know, one thing away from your class and I was like safety, if they, if they have safety down we can work on everything else, but that is exact. Like that's number one. Everyone should, you know, have their finger off the trigger when they're handling the gun until they're ready to shoot. Um, you know, keeping it pointing in a safe direction. I mean, those, those two things are, I think the most important safety rules, because let's say you had your finger on the trigger, as long as you had it pointed in a safe direction, it's not going to hurt anybody. But let's say you had it pointed in an unsafe direction. If you had your finger off the trigger, it's not going to go off. Yeah. At, uh, one of our sponsors is the uh, Sig Sauer and I've been to the Sig Academy, you know, 20 or so times and the, when they do the safety brief and I mean, the safety brief is a legit safety brief where you're, you're initialing every single line item and, you know, people are reading the, the line items out loud. So everyone's participating. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. thorough, but the two most important safety rules are, you know, muzzle management and trigger finger discipline. And, yes, and the instructors absolutely. always say, they're like, look, you can violate one of those, right? Not that we want you to, but if you happen to violate, say, trigger figure discipline, right? And you send a round, as long as you have good muzzle management, that round is not going to impact a person and you'll probably have minimal property damage. Exactly. And then if you happen to have terrible muzzle management, but good trigger finger discipline, someone might be swept, but we're all going home tonight. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, I get it. You know, there's the, the four cardinal rules of firearm safety, you know, all guns are always loaded and, yeah. and so on and so on. But those two, you know, and I don't know if they're they, the most important. Yeah. And, and I don't know if they did that just because they're trying to, I don't, I don't think they would do lowest common denominator training, but those two are priority. Um, yeah. and then there's always like the other rules, like, Hey, if you're, uh, if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, right. If you're, 
if you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery, you probably should not be operating a firearm. Like, mm-hmm. like they've got a very uh, specific way of, of going through the safety rules. And, you know, I think they, they do a pretty darn good job. Um, you mentioned federal and you're technically what an ambassador. I don't even, uh-huh. I don't like using the term influencer. I hate that as yeah. like my own. I know. Yeah. You know, so well, what is, I also, I personally, I can't stand influencers. <laughs> I think influencing is like the downhill of America. I mean, the fact that people are like having an only fans or something like that, like, I mean, technically, yeah, am I kind of considered an influencer, I guess, but I'd like to think I'm doing it for the greater good, not being like, oh, look at my life, look at this, you know, oh, this is what I do, and then just make everybody feel crappy about their lives when everything that that influencer is portraying is most likely fake, and it's not, you know, it's so far from reality, and uh, it's just... Don't get me started. That's oh. a whole a whole nother podcast. Oh no, I want I want to get started there. I'm totally opening up this door. So, one of the things that drives me nuts is you know as technically like I guess I'm considered like a micro influencer with like 30, yeah. 30 000 something followers. Um, you know, I tend to say like here's a skill or here's an item. You know, I don't like the idea of you know companies throwing stuff at me, being like, hey, we'll give you this if you post about it. It's like no. You know, and I've, yeah. I've made some enemies over, over the years because it's like, look, I'm going to use the gear that I bought or the gear that I've, I've acquired and I only use that gear and I'm brand loyal. Like I always tell people Kafaru, uh, is a backpack company that I've been loyal to since 2007. And I've had other companies say, carry this. I'm like, nope, I've had dinner with those people. I've stayed at their houses. I'm not doing that to them. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it's funny when the influencers, it's more about them and you see a lot of like narcissists out there where, yes. you know, it's like, Oh, let me do, let me, let me get my hair just right. Or let me, let me do some push ups before I, I, you know, hold this gun. So my triceps look really good. Like, have you, so I can't, I also cannot stand, sorry to cut you off, but I cannot no, no. stand the people that have to document everything. Like you'll go to lunch with somebody and they have to, they're sitting there taking selfies, taking pictures of the food. Nobody could eat until they take pictures of everyone's plate. And I am just <laughs> like, are you kidding me right now? And they're not even like, oh, it drives me nuts. See, I, I'm one to take photos of food because I like cooking and I, I want ideas and I'll post up something really epic, but I'm not the person that's going to take a photo, look at it and be like, oh no, I got to redo it. Oh no, right? I got to redo it. Or like, do you, I'm sure you probably don't stop other people from eating so that you could take a picture no, of their plate. <laughs> God no, God no. So, so yeah, the influencers that are out there today, I mean, I mean, that's, that's a whole other culture within the, the firearms community. And mm-hmm. many times a lot of these, these influencers in the firearms community, like they don't tell the whole story. They, they promote the product, they get their paycheck or whatever. Um, but I love it when someone's like, oh, I really, really tested out this firearm. And it's like, okay, well, what was your testing routine? Well, I, I shot it a whole bunch at the range. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. what were you, what exactly were you testing? Right? Like or if you're yeah. following the scientific method, there should be a hypothesis, right? Like, yeah, exactly. You know, as opposed to just turning uh, a whole bunch of money into noise. Um, I know. So you're working with Federal. I just see yeah. on, on your Instagram now you've got this 350 Legend revolver. Have you shot that thing yet? Yes, I have. Uh, I put out a stupid video. It's kind of stupid because so the 350 Legend caliber is for um, hunting, which mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know much about 350 Legend. I'm also sponsored by Smith and Wesson. So, and I've been bugging them. I'm like, I need a revolver for a wheel gun Wednesday so that I could participate in this hashtag, you know, kind of jokingly. 
Um, but I, I wanted like a really big one and they were releasing. Cause I'm like, Hey, if I'm going to do this, like go big or go home. And so they just recently released the, released the 350 legend revolver. And they're like, Hey, you know, you want a revolver? Like, here you go. Um, have fun with it. Contacted federal. They sent me out ammo and initially like, on the website, it doesn't look that big. And then when I open the box and I take it out, I'm like, okay, this thing is huge. It's almost like you need, you almost like want to hold the barrel or something because it's so like top heavy <laughs> when you shoot it. Um, but I, because it's for, it's a hunting cartridge. I'm like, okay, how could I make a YouTube video without actually hunting? But, you know, and then also kind of make it funny. So I went to the dollar store and bought a bunch of stuffed animals and then used the hundred yard range where I set up a bunch of animals throughout. And I did like a little course where I was like, oh, look, there's a raccoon. Oh, we're going to shoot it. And, you know, and then I shot it. And but I got to say, I was actually really surprised with the the recoil. Um, I was thinking, okay, by the time I'm done shooting this video, my wrist is probably going to be killing me. But it actually was really pleasant to shoot. And this gun shoots out some pretty big spitfires. I mean, it was, it was just a fun gun. It looks like it's ported. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's got to help a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of videos online of people that are applying like a very thumb forward grip, like you would have yes. on an auto loader to shoot yep. a revolver. And they don't realize that there's gases that are being released to the side between the, the cylinder and, and that. And next thing you know, they have like a little, little nub of a thumb. Um, mm -hmm. Revolver shooting is, is, it's a dying art. And I mean, I know I poo pooed it earlier with like the little J frames, but there's some legit hunting revolvers out there that are super capable. Um, and now with the advancement of like a lot of these micro optics, you know, I know red yeah. dot, red dots aren't as popular as say like a intermediate um, relief, uh, magnified optic. But I mean, some of these revolvers guys are, are hunting with revolvers and carrying a smaller, uh, hunting implement than say like a, a rifle. And I mean, I've wanted to do a, a handgun hunt for a long time. And our team is going out back out to four horse outfitters this weekend. And I'm just bitter that I can't go out there and take an antelope, but, uh, right. Well, man. that's what the 350 legend cartridge was developed for was to take down a deer. Yeah. Yeah. I remember during Isn't that the, insane. No, no, it's, it's totally plausible. I mean, it's basically like a, like it's a straight walled cartridge. So it's very similar in that respect to say like a 4570, um, mm -hmm. but just scaled down. Um, yeah. I, rem I remember during the pandemic, there was 350 legend everywhere. Um, and I don't know if it was because the, the ammo just came out and then the pandemic hit or there weren't enough firearms that were chambered in it. But I remember thinking going to the grocery store or not grocery store to the sporting goods store and being like, damn, like if I had a 350 legend, I'd be squared away with ammo. Like I, <laughs> right. you could find it everywhere. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool that Good you're, that's pretty cool that you're, you're in with federal and in with Smith and Wesson. Um, yeah, it's what, honestly, I mean, I am incredibly lucky. Like it's, it's one of those things. If you told me 10 years ago, like, okay, look, you're going to make a career out of the gun industry. You're going to be sponsored by these companies. Like never in a million years would I believe it. Mm -hmm. And I still, I mean, I still wake up every day, like thinking like, I really am very fortunate to have the life that I have. Hey y'all wanted to take a quick break from this podcast to let you know that one of our sponsors is element oftentimes mispronounced as L-M-N-T. 
It is an electrolyte company. And if you haven't heard anything about them yet, they are taking the science-backed electrolyte market by storm. Each little sachet of powder has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Everything you need, nothing that you don't. That means no sugar, no junk, lots of salt. Lots of salt. You'll get used to the salt. Don't worry. As a nurse, I've always understood the importance of electrolytes in our body. When you're doing any sort of natural processes, which happen on the daily in your body, whether you want it to or not, or you're expending energy through working out or chasing kids or just doing your basic job, you have to rehydrate with more than just water. You need hydration on the cellular level and electrolytes are the key that can unlock that for you. I can 100% tell when I don't take my electrolytes. It's something I take every single day. But when I'm working out, especially in the hot summer or the cold winter, when you get dehydrated the most, believe it or not, I notice a huge difference when I'm not taking my electrolytes. If you haven't tried electrolytes, I highly encourage you to do so. It is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. So even if you're doing keto or low carb or a paleo diet, you can use the element. It's great at helping to prevent and eliminate headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. Helps you with hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluent ba fluid balance in the body. My favorite flavor is orange salt. My kid's favorite flavor is watermelon salt. I think you'll love it. Give it a try. And if you go to drink lmnt.com slash fieldcraft, you'll get a free sample pack that's eight single serving packets free with any element order. It's a great way for you to try out all eight flavors or to share element with one of your friends. So visit drink element, drink lmnt.com slash fieldcraft. Now, what's your everyday carry? Uh, so I go between the Smith & Wesson Shield Plus and then also the SIG P365. The Shield Plus, uh, is, is that the, the 45 ACP? No. Um, so I actually use 30 Super Carry. And I don't know if you've had a chance to get your hands on 30 Super Carry, no. but that's another that's around that uh, federal developed and they released um, in January of this year. And it's still, it's not taking off as quickly as I thought it would, but I do think that it's, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty popular. Um, I think more companies just need to jump on board and start making guns that are chambered in, you know, for 30 super carry, but basically 30 super carry it's, um, the diameter is is smaller than three eighty or nine millimeters, so you're able to carry a lot more rounds. But it has very similar power to nine millimeter. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at it right now on the website. And it also doesn't. I don't want to say it has less recoil because it does to a degree, but you almost have to shoot it to really understand it. But essentially, it's such a fast caliber, like such a fast round when it goes off, that it all happens. It cycles much quicker than any of like the 380 or the nine millimeter that you end up on target much quicker. Your follow-up shots are, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just such a pleasant round to shoot. And it looks like, uh, the super carry HST rounds are a hundred grain. And I think the HST rounds for nine are what? 124. 
that's like, the believe, most fun. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 124. So you're, I mean, you can't defeat gravity and, and inertia in physics. So it makes sense that the hundred grain would be a little bit lighter shooting than say 124. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I would love to play with it, but I like a couple of years ago, I said, I'm, I need to get my calibers like limited and I need to just stay, yeah. stick with like nine, 45, 357, 44. Like at one point I had like 10 mil and I had 40 and I had like all these others. And I was like, no, I need to just standardize my ammo, fewer ammo cans, but more of the same yes. caliber. Um, and anytime someone's like, you got to try this new round. I'm like, Oh God, what, it, what's the new benefit or the added yeah. value? No, I, I completely understand. And you're not the first person to say that, that they only buy, you know, specific calibers and it makes sense. You know, simplifying your life is, I mean, how I just moved. I'm all about simplifying my life now. <laughs> yeah. I got to do that. When you have to move. <laughs> I got to do that move across country. And one of the things that I dread with that move is, you know, ammo. well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, loading up my, the U-Haul, right. And getting all my guns in that U-Haul. Uh, when I moved out here to Utah, I put certain things in the pod. And then there are certain things I was like, I cannot trust the pod with ammo mm-hmm. or guns. And they, they even have rules or like nothing combustible or anything like that, which maybe are, maybe I didn't follow, but, uh, you know, I, I just hate the idea of like when you stop for this road trip, like I'm going to probably have three nights, like somewhere uh, just outside of your your home state. Right. So I'll probably be just outside of uh, Colorado and then probably somewhere in like St. Louis area and somewhere in Tennessee. And then I'll be in North Carolina. But I hate the idea of having to leave that loaded U-Haul in a parking yes. lot, you know. It's like, what am I going to do to, to make sure that no one runs off with my guns or anything of value? So, oh yeah, I, I feel your pain with the, with the move and I know. And also you never realize how many guns you have until it's time to move. Or in my case, I had to get all my guns out because I was showing my house to sell. And I joke because like, as I was, you know, just getting rid of all my guns, there's more guns showing up because I have a home FFL and I'm like, Oh, why did they, you know, why did this manufacturer decide like of all weeks to send me, you know, like figure it's been on back order forever. And and so I had guns like shipping right and left and I'm like trying to hide them wherever I can. And it was just, it was kind of a disaster, but also fairly humorous, but I get it. And, and you think like, okay, well maybe I only have like 30 or 40 guns. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. you start finding so many guns and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really have any good advice as to how you can make sure because I'd say like, oh, we'll just put it in, you know, more locking mechanisms. But I mean, ultimately, somebody could just steal your trailer exactly. and then figure out how to open it later on. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say that about showing your home. So I'm moving out of my my apartment here in Utah and I'm going to the one in North Carolina. And my landlord is like, oh, I'm going to start showing the apartment so I can get someone in there in November. I'm like, okay, do your thing. But then I started thinking like, okay, so there's going to be at least two people going through the apartment. My landlord, as far as he knew, I was just the mild mannered writer right. and I was going to live the writer's life. Little did he know I was writing about like guns and knives and, and yeah. survival stuff. But I was like, okay, that means I got to take my shower knife <laughs> off my shower because uh, I do keep a, a mission titanium knife in my shower just because it's America. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, okay, then there's a deer head. And then in the in the kitchen, and if he opens up the refrigerator to see like what's the condition of the refrigerator, I've got a bag of like venison scraps and like a 
like this guy's probably going to think that I'm like Jeffrey Dahmer or something like that. Right. No kidding. <laughs> Man. Yeah. So, so guys, if you're planning on moving, you know, definitely hide your stuff and make sure that if someone walks through your apartment or your house or whatever, like they don't know anything about you from, from what they can see. Yeah, um, absolutely. So let's talk about your FFL and let's talk about this whole state of affairs right now. Cause like there's a lot of screwy stuff happening in the world. I know that credit card companies are going after gun manufacturers or gun sales and yeah. the new online process for, for class threes, they said it was going to be quick, but one of my buddies has been waiting like almost 300 days. Um, what's your take on like the current state of affairs with like the firearms industry with, you know, purchases and that whole debacle that was the, you know, oh, everything's going to be quicker online. I mean, honestly, right now, everything is such a mess and all of these anti-gun organizations. So if they can't change laws, they're coming at us from all different angles. I mean, even look at like UPS, like I just posted something about UPS and how, you know, if you're an FFL, you have to agree to turn over your all your records so that, you know, people have personal information about who's buying guns. Um, same with, you know, the credit card company. So now they're labeling it, which makes no sense if this is how they're trying to catch criminals, because most criminals are not obtaining their guns by buying them legally. Um, it's just it's I mean, it's just a constant battle. And that's why I started talking about politics on my podcast, because it's just incredibly frustrating that if you're not in the gun industry, you're not staying up to date with this. A lot of people have no idea what's going on. And it's such an infringement on our rights that more people need to know so that we can fight back. Because before you know it, I mean, we're, we're, I mean, they're just, they're making so many moves and making, unfortunately, so much progress that our rights are just, you know, becoming smaller and smaller. What I worry about is that they're going to come after ammunition. You know, I know I, I or think it's going to be like the next California where you have to have it sent directly to an FFL you pay the FFL to do the transfer or they, you know, start taxing, you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, and it's so frustrating because you and I both know that guns or any of the objects, ammunition, I mean, it's just that it's, it's an object that somebody chose to use, but there's plenty of other places. I mean, look at all the other countries that have banned guns. There's still killings going on left and right. That, that's not the issue. Yeah. Pet peeve of mine. It's not the law abiding citizens, obviously that are carrying out these, you know, these mass shootings. No, it's all, it's always the outlier. Um, yeah. And my pet peeve is when people say, well, we need to stop gun violence. It's like slow down right there. It's not right? gun violence. It's just violence. You yes. know, and a person can be very violent with just their fists. A person can be very violent with a vehicle. They, whatever the tool is, that's just the mechanism that they're using to carry out mm -hmm. the violence that's in their head. And you will never, ever, ever legislate someone's thoughts or their, their intentions does not happen. And yeah. the, another pet peeve, and I'm going to get on my soapbox here. I've already had like three or four cups of black rifle coffee this morning, so I'm, I'm going, <laughs> but I, I can't stand it when people are like, if we had a background check, this would have stopped it. It's like, okay, there are a lot of people that never have committed crime and they will. And that yeah. background check is not going to stop anything. It is. I know. Oh God, that drives or, me nuts. Or they're like, well, I like guns, but the assault rifles need to be banned. And I'm like, oh, really, lady? Well, I, this happened to me on a plane 
not recently, uh, maybe a few years back. And she was like, you know, I like hunting and stuff, but the assault rifles, they need to be banned. And I was like, well, what's an assault rifle? Yeah. And she couldn't answer. And I'm like, don't freaking try to ban something that you can't even answer the question to. Or how about this one? You don't need an assault rifle to hunt deer. Our founding fathers didn't Uh, hunt deer with assault rifles. Like, hold on. They actually did. It was called a musket at the time. And that was the greatest technology. And they did not write the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution after hunting. They wrote it after overthrowing a tyrannical government. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's not let a little bit of historical facet in the way of your narrative. Oh, my God. And honestly, I mean, there is extreme government overreach right now. I mean, look at ATF trying to redefine laws, which they're not able to do. Legally, it's it's illegal for them to do what they're doing. Yeah, I uh, in in one of the I, I got to be careful how I say this one, but I train a guy that works for a very specific three letter agency, and I asked him about mm-hmm. some of the stuff in his agency. I'm like, how do you feel about this? Really? He goes, Kev, honestly, uh, the guys on the ground, like the ones that are in the field, we don't give a crap about that. Uh, he's like, that's usually the the brass, the ones that want to make a name for themselves or have political aspirations. And yeah. they are so far removed from the reality of armed America or whatever you want to call it, that they just mm-hmm. make these decisions that, you know, once they, they're out, they're out, you know, and it's like, really, you're going after a pistol brace, you know, yeah. and that's a pistol, that's a rifle, that's a short barreled rifle. Like, that whole thing blows my mind too, you know, actually most ATF agents are normally pro gun. It's the ones that are higher up, but, but I, I do have quite a few friends that, well, that used to work, um, as ATF agents and they got out because they're like, they just, it got to a point where they just weren't agreeing. I mean, they signed up to get criminals off the street and that's not what they're doing at this point. And the same phenomenon is true with local law enforcement, right? Like yes. if you talk to chiefs of police, the chief of police is probably going to be very anti-gun. You talk to the beat cop or the sergeants or, you know, the other officers, and they're going to say, we actually like the fact that people can protect themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it's, it's a self-regulating problem or solution, I should say, uh, when people are armed, you know, and it, but you, you see the the chief, that's a very political position, and they're making these statements that the cops are like, we don't agree with that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I know. Man. So what's next for you? Like, I mean, you are a brand ambassador for Federal. You've got a podcast. You're doing all sorts of cool stuff with a bunch of different companies. Like, what's in your five and 10-year plan? Hmm. Well, I mean, honestly, at this point, when it comes to the gun industry, I don't think there's anything that I don't have my hands in because now I, you know, have a partnership with a gun store, gun ranges. I write for magazines. I do a lot of companies, uh, marketing. I have my YouTube channel. I'm active on social media, firearms instructor. It's and yet the biggest thing is like really just, I know I have, there's momentum right now. And I think the biggest mistake that people make is they gain momentum and then they stop. They mm-hmm. think like, okay, that, and they take it for granted and, or they get lazy or, you know, and so I'm just going to keep running with it and I'm going to see how far I can take this. And I think it's extremely important to have female in the industry, females in the industry who, you know, can carry on an intelligent conversation and, 
talk to people about what's going on, especially when it comes to politics, because I think if anyone's going to be changing minds, it's going to be females and take, you know, take that however you want. I hate, you know, categorizing, you know, women and men separately, but I don't think that it's going to be your typical male that's going to be making moves. I think it's going to be the women that, you know, if they're going to open anyone's eyes, I think it's going to be them. I mean, that's what happened during Prohibition. You think about it like when the temperance movement came about and the message was, look, we can't have our husbands come home and beat us. You know, they they leave the factories and they start drinking and they come home and they take out their aggression on us. It was the women that created the change in the country to make alcohol illegal, you know, and I think the same is true in the firearms industry. I mean, you have the million mom march, which they're, they're trying their best and, you know, they're, they're doing what they, they can to stop again, gun violence, Mm -hmm. which we know is not a real thing. Um, but I think you get more armed women out there saying this firearm saved my life. Right. Or I saved my life using this firearm. You get more of those stories out there and it offsets all of these, these stories that are like once in a, in a while. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying and I'm definitely not saying that the impact of say like a school shooting is nothing, but they are infrequent, you know? Mm -hmm. And when people say, oh, mass shootings are up, it's like, okay, does mass shooting include gang violence? Yeah. Because that doesn't affect me. That affects Mm -hmm. the gangs. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how do you define mass shooting? Um, But I agree. Like if you get more women out there who are highly sophisticated in their delivery of a strong message that this firearm is a tool, it can protect you. And especially as like a game changer when, I mean, from one culture to another, the male is usually the larger of the sexes. Well, now Mm -hmm. you have a tool that levels that playing field. Absolutely. I tell that to people all the time. I live alone. I sleep great at night because I know (laughs) how to use a gun well. But I tell people all the time, like, okay, so let's say you want to ban guns. We ban guns tomorrow. What is giving me a fighting chance if whether it's one male or five of them? And we can argue all day long, male or female, we're the same. We're not. Physically, we're not the same. So somebody breaks into my house what's giving me, you know, that equalizer in order to protect my life. There's nothing else that I could even think that even gives me a chance. It's funny when people say something like, well, why don't you just use a a less than lethal device? It's like, okay, so we use a less, (laughs) yeah, let's use a less than less than lethal device, which is also less effective device, which means that that person's probably going to have to get closer. It's going to have less of an impact. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of less that goes into less than lethal, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not opposed to that because I think that they, they might be necessary when your life isn't in danger per se, but it could escalate to that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not using pepper spray if somebody breaks in my house and they have a gun. Yeah. And again, pepper spray, less than lethal. Let's not Absolutely. forget secondary exposure, you know, like, mm-hmm. that's yeah. stuff that's of burns if it's, if it's in the air, um, man, there, there's so much we could talk about. I know your time's valuable. Um, and I've got another podcast I got lined up in a little bit, but where can people find you if they want to kind of pick your brain or learn from you, train from you, watch some of the videos that you're doing with your 350 massive revolver. Where can people find you? The easiest would probably just go to my website for my podcast, which is gunfunny.com. 
and there's links to social media, YouTube. And then if you guys want to train with me, if you're in Colorado, unfortunately right now I'm, I'm trying to limit my travel because I've been going all over the place nonstop. But, um, right now so if you're in colorado just go to dcfguns.com and you can sign up for a class and my name will be right next to the class you'll know whether or not i'm teaching it outstanding well ava thanks so much for being on i really appreciate your time and you know i had to return the favor of exposing you to our audience the way that you expose me to yours um and if there's anything that we can ever do or if you ever want to jump into a class with our guys just let me know and you know you'll get a chance to meet some of our instructors that are out in colorado Absolutely. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me on and for such a great conversation. Yeah. And we could, we could keep going. Trust me, the caffeine has not stopped flowing over here. So. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, guys, this is the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.